Hey y'all, I'm Sammy, your host of the You Were Made For More podcast. John 10.10 is a promise that Jesus came down to earth so that we would have life and have it abundantly. My prayer is that this podcast and all of the content that we put out would remind every student that they were made for more, simply because of who they were created to be. My own walk with the Lord and my relationships with the teenagers that I disciple have shown me that once we understand whose we are, the game changes. Or in other words, transformation happens. Our identity changes everything. We recognize that it takes investment and partnership between the church and parents to raise teens who know and believe who they are in Jesus. And we're here to help. So buckle up as we take this journey and take a look at what God has to say about friendships, relationships, sexuality, dating, and all the things in between. Alright guys, this is the second podcast episode that is going to feature our second speaker from the Y Summit. If you have not listened to the first episode that features Laura Daly and her talk about relationships, I encourage you to pause this episode right here and go back and listen to that episode prior to this episode. Um... Rebecca Keesling Sandwich, well, I guess Laura Sandwiched Rebecca's talks at Rebecca's talk at the Y Summit. Um, so Rebecca gave her testimony to students at the Y Summit, and Rebecca has a really unique story. Her story surrounds a topic that is frequently used as an argument in the pro-choice movement. What if the woman who wants an abortion was raped? It absolutely should be justified then, right? Abortion has to be okay in those cases, correct? I'll admit, even for me, this is such a sensitive and difficult topic to breach because it involves real people many times in the trenches of deep and raw pain that I personally do not have experience with and it's hard for me to put myself in that person's shoes um it's a lot to process so in the past um I would say that I probably would have said abortion is okay in those cases and it wasn't really until I heard Rebecca's compelling testimony where she's able to highlight why babies conceived in rape are just as worthy of life as the rest of us um that I really was able to think about that more deeply and that's why we asked her to speak at the Y Summit Rebecca is the founder and president of Save the One, and she has spoken internationally um, for the pro-life movement. She has also helped pregnant rape victims all around the world choose life for their children. She is an attorney, and you'll hear 
the way that she presents this argument and it is in a very legal fashion but I think that is so compelling when we're having these difficult conversations she's very intellectual and able to formulate the argument well so I encourage you like seriously take notes on the way that she breaches this subject um and I hope that you are as encouraged by her story as I was. Uh, all right. I was adopted and I learned at 18 that I was conceived and raped. I learned at 19 the horrible details that my birth mother was abducted at knife point by a serial rapist. She actually wanted to meet me and... We had a wonderful reunion. She sent me a beautiful letter. But when I asked her about abortion, she told me that if it had been legal, she would have aborted me. And even if she had to do it all over again, she said, it should have been my right. Then she later shared that she actually went to two illegal abortions, and I was almost aborted. The back alley conditions and the fact that it was illegal caused her to back out. And so I literally owe my birth to the Michigan law, which was passed in 1931, in effect when I was conceived in October of 1968, and exactly four years before Roe v. Wade in January of 69 when she went for the two abortions. Uh, that law protected me. And I'm so grateful that my life was spared. But I know that there's nothing more special about me than the millions of others, tens of millions of others who have been killed. Where am I getting the feedback from? So it's out of gratitude for my own like life having been spared that I seek to do the same for others because they're just as worthy, just like I am, just as worthy of love and life as anyone else. Now, how many of you hear people say, well, what about in cases of rape? Right. And I heard that when I was young. And so when I learned how I was conceived, it was like I could instantly hear the echoes of all those people who would say, you know, I'm pro-life, well, except in cases of rape, or I'm pro-choice, oh, especially in cases of rape. And according to Gallup polls, 60% of pro-lifers make the rape exception. So I have at least more than half of pro-life people who are against me. But studies show that it's easy to change the hearts and minds of pro-life people who make the rape exception. And you can also change hearts and minds of even pr radical pro-choice activists, which God has used me to do. But it's very important to put faces, voices, stories to this issue. Now, I'm an attorney. So in my first day of law school for my legal research and writing class, we learned something called IRAC, Issue, Rule, Application, Conclusion. That's how you write a legal brief. You have to state the issue, you have to state the rule or what the law is, or in the pro-life movement, what the principle is. 
Then you have to apply it to the real people in your case at hand, and then you make your conclusion. Now, you could be the best legal scholar there is, but if at trial you fail to apply the law to the real people in your case, you will lose before the judge, before the jury. Likewise, if you merely present the story of your clients, but you fail to apply the law, you will lose. You have to apply the principle to stories, to real people. That's what Christ did. He shared biblical truths through stories. Stories of real people, people we learned about in the Old Testament that everybody knew about, and through parables. Because people, studies show, they can remember the principle through those stories. And it helps make it real, what we're talking about. So it's not just a philosophical discussion, you know, about like a fetus or... Instead, people can understand we're talking about real people. So how many of you here learned about Roe v. Wade in school? Do you guys know who Norma McCorvey is? Okay. Now, how many of you, and she was Jane Roe and Roe v. Wade, how many of you know whether Norma, Norma McCorvey gave birth to a son or a daughter in that case? Daughter. Yes, daughter. I tell you what, for decades, people in the pro-life movement didn't even know that. Leaders in the pro-life movement didn't even know that. I met her a couple of times. So of course, the first thing I asked she gave birth to a daughter. This was not some fictitious, theoretical, philosophical, legal entity called a fetus, but a real person. And a woman, no less, who was targeted for abortion in that case. We cannot let people forget that we're talking about real people, especially in the case of Roe versus Wade, especially in abortion clinics, pregnancy centers. That's what changes hearts and minds. That's what draws people, people in. If you merely tell your story, what I find is people say, oh, well, that's just anecdotal. Or for the moms in our organization, when they merely tell their stories without applying the principle, people will just summarily dismiss them. They'll just blow them off and say, oh, well, that's your story. That's why it's about choice. That was your choice. But they have to make sure they make the point that this isn't just about my choice. This is about the humanity of my child. That's the truth. That's the bottom line to stories. Because if you just tell this sort of uplifting, you know, pro-life story about someone who chose life, you know, the message is not just choose life. Oh, choose life. No, it's protect life. It's not about choice. We don't want to use their rhetoric. This is not just about choice. This is about the humanity of the child and what abortion does, that it kills a living human being who is just as worthy of love and life as any of you. Now, Norma McCorvey's daughter came forward about a year and a half ago, and it was national news at the time. Someone wrote a book about the Roe babies because she had three children, didn't end up raising any of them. But her daughter is the one who was conceived when, and 
the one who was the subject matter of the case Roe v. Wade when she went to, well, she didn't actually ever show up in court, but her lawyers went to court for her in Dallas, Texas. And the trial date in Texas, or the original hearing date that got appealed where she was denied an abortion, was in a footnote of the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion. And when I first read the whole opinion when I was in law school, I saw this footnote and I gasped because it had my, my birth date on it. I was born July 22, 1969. It said that the original hearing date in Texas was July 22, 1970 on my first birth date. But they made a correction that there was actually an error in the record. And the hearing date was actually May 22, 1970, exactly 10 months after my birth date. So I always knew that her daughter was around my age, you know, a little younger than me. But then she came forward a year and a half ago, and they stated her birth date. But what they didn't do in all of the articles in the national news was to state the court date down in Texas. Her daughter was born June 1st, 1970. Y'all remember what I said the hearing date was? May 22nd. She was full term. She was full term. No wonder why she never went to court and her lawyers didn't bring her with her because she was full term. Pursuant to Roe v. Wade's trimester scheme, she wouldn't have even qualified for an abortion under that trimester scheme. So our entire Roe v. Wade and abortion culture was all based upon a case where she wasn't even pregnant anymore by the time it reached the Supreme Court. She placed her child for adoption and where she wouldn't have even qualified for an abortion because she was in her third trimester and, in fact, ready to deliver. This is the truth that people need to know. When your friends, when you go off to college, you know, and they talk about Roe v. Wade, you know, raise your hand. Did you know? Did you know that she gave birth to a daughter? Did you know that the Supreme Court retroactively issued her the death penalty? And said, your mother should have been able to abort you. If we had our way, you'd be dead right now. You shouldn't even be alive. That is the bottom line of the truth of what Roe v. Wade means. And what it means to someone like me. And now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, we have the, the Dobbs decision. And we're going to have a whole generation now of Dobbs babies who will be born, who will owe their births to the Dobbs decision. And their stories cannot be denied. And we'll meet, need to make sure in the years and decades that come that we're able to identify their mothers and tell their stories Mothers who will love their children, who will be grateful like my birth mother is today. 
that we were spared from the horror of abortion and protected, both of us protected by law. Now, sadly, when you look at polling on this issue, we see in many states, people will say uh, between 90 to 95% will say that they believe abortion's wrong, that it's immoral, that they don't like abortion. You'll hear people say, well, I would personally never have one. But then you see women going into abortion clinics, crying, knowing it's wrong, believing it's immoral, and yet they're having an abortion. We call that cognitive dissonance, when people are not living according to their beliefs. And those studies show that all these people believe it's wrong. And you ask people, well, why wouldn't you personally have an abortion? Well, I just think it's wrong. Okay, well, what's wrong with it? Well, I just, I just don't like it. Okay, well, why don't you like it? What's wrong? And when they finally will answer you after this bit of discomfort, They'll say, well, well, it's just that I personally believe that it ends a human life or that it's killing a human being. Well, that, that is science. You know, it's like, oh, well, okay, well, let's talk about that now. You believe it's killing a human being. Let's talk about that. Yet you think it should be legal? And then we see studies where you pull people and they'll say that... Uh, it's between 50 to 60% in, in some states. Some states it's less than 50%, 40%, where they call themselves pro-life. Some states it's as high as 70% where people call themselves pro-life. So you have 90 to 95% of people saying that it's immoral, wrong, but your average is maybe 55 in different states where they'll say, well, they'll actually call themselves pro-life. Like, what happened there? That's cognitive dissonance. And then you do a further survey, though, and you ask people, should it be illegal? And the numbers plummet to 30 to 40%, depending on the state. And those people, interestingly, the ones who believe it should be illegal are the ones who are 100% pro-life because they get it. They understand that it's about legal protection, that it's about the humanity of the child, that it's not about choice or whether or not you like abortion, but it's about legal protection, equal protection, due process, the 14th Amendment that says that no state shall deprive a person of their right to life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and no state shall deny a person equal protection of the laws. And the people who understand it should be illegal are the ones who get it, that every life is precious, every life is valuable. But overall, surveying people, it's like between 13 to 19% say that they're pro-life without exception. And... You know, that's an uphill battle for people like us, right? We get called all kinds of names. We get called rapist child, never rape victim's child. But that's what we are. I'm the child of a rape survivor. You know, what an insult to all of the mothers who, after everything she's been through and she's raising her child, you're going to suggest that her rapist should have parental rights? Like, how dare you? You hear rapist child, you immediately correct them rape victim's child, rape survivor's child. My goodness, how dare you suggest that rapists should have parental rights, right? 
That's the answer when you hear that. When they say extreme, you should say, well, I think it's extreme in a civilized society to punish innocent children for someone else's crime. That's barbaric. We don't do that. I believe in punishing rapists, not babies. So we have signs that say that, punish rapists, not babies. We use that hashtag all the time. Ironically, according um, to the U.S. Supreme Court in Coker v. Georgia, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to get all legalese on you. Uh, In Coker v. Georgia, they said that rapists do not deserve the death penalty. And in the second case of Kennedy v. Louisiana, they said that even for child molesters, it's cruel and unusual punishment. So then ask people, so then how does the innocent child deserve to die for his crime? And I ask people when they say, what about cases of rape? Or, oh, it should be legal in cases of rape. I'll ask them, so tell me, in the Me Too day and age, would you support a law which would authorize any woman to say rape and she would legally be permitted to pay someone to kill her rapist or just her innocent child because that's what abortion is they're hired hitmen paid assassins who are paid to have someone killed and can you imagine if someone actually proposed that you would be able to allow that that a woman just has to say rape or even if you had a reporting requirement Well, as long as she reports the rape, she could hire someone to have her rapist killed. That would never happen. They'd say, whoa, 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 where's due process? Where's my right to counsel? Where's my right to trial? My right to be hurt? Like, right to appeal? That would never happen. Yet, with the innocent child, they have no problem killing not the accused, but the most innocent. Uh, We also get called demon seed, evil seed, Satan spawn, devil's child. And um, we can both show you. Look, uh, show them. See? See that? No horns. No horns. No No tail. Yeah. Um, But they demonize us. We're the only people group globally that it's permissible to bash. We're systematically targeted for abortion. Um, I also get called rape trophy. I'm told that if you cared about your birth mother at all, you would have killed yourself a long time ago. I mean, it's cruel. And again, we are just as worthy of love and life as anyone else. So we have a global network with Save the One of almost 1,200 who were conceived in rape, like me and Ashley, and mothers who became pregnant by rape. You'll see our pink signs out at the march. Wave, say hi, take a picture with us. And um, we hope that you'll follow us on Facebook, Instagram, share pictures with us. We have other signs. You can take pictures with us later. And um, help put a face to the issue. Help bring light to this issue. And help people to realize that every life has value, no exceptions, no compromise. Our name comes from, it's Save the One, from the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus said, see that you do not despise any of these little ones. For I tell you, they're angels in heaven. Always look upon the face of my Father in heaven. And he goes right into the parable of the lost sheep, how the good shepherd leaves the 99 to save the one. And he explains the point by saying, for in the same way, Your Father in heaven is not willing that any 
of these little ones should perish, and neither should we. Thank you. <laughs>